Hello and welcome to Can I Get a Picture? I'm your host, Soul Lovemore. Join me as I get to pick the brains of some extraordinary people hearing their struggles and successes that have shaped who they are today. Today I'm speaking to Mark McIver, more widely known as Slider Cuts. From renting a chair in his local barbers to building an empire boasting celebrity clients such as Anthony Joshua, LeBron James and Tiny Temper. Today the Slider Cuts brand is a household name amongst the black community. An exceptional businessman and a grafter at heart. I loved hearing Mark's story of seizing opportunities and the importance of the barbershop in black culture. Thank you for coming on. What do you prefer? Should I call you Mark? Slider cuts? What's your... I don't even mind. Like it's whatever. I don't, I, I don't mind. <laughs> All right, let's go. Let's go with Slider Cuts as that's the, you know, that's kind of like, that's the brand name and that's the name everyone knows and loves. But as I said, thank you very much for coming on. I mean, I've, you know, had the fortune of doing a bit of research on you and just, you know, following your career over the years through, you know, all the amazing clients you look after. So it was just naturally, I wanted to get you on here to hear your journey and how you've made, you know, becoming a barber so such a, an attractive career and actually becoming a businessman because I don't even see you as a barber I think you've you've taken it and you've you know turned it into much more in the work you're doing you know even in the community you know taking on apprentices and and things like that so so yeah I'm really looking forward to to getting stuck in to hear more about you so I'll say let's start with early life tell me about a bit about you where you were where you were born and raised and what early life was like for you Okay, so I was born and raised, I was born at Hammersmith Hospital. So um, I grew up around North West, West London. So I moved up until 10 years old. I lived in Neasden. I lived in Kilburn. I lived in, uh, some of the places are going up my head, in Neasden, Kilburn, around those areas anyway. I moved about five, six times before I was six, you know, I originally living in Elsport, then he went to Neasden, then he went to Kingsbury, <laughs> you know, so I used to live, you know, I went to school around those areas, right, when I turned 10, we moved to Camden, which is the edge of Northwest, it's right on the brink of Northwest, and then, you know, that was me till I was um, 26, when I got married, moved in with my wife, and we live now in Hackney, um, my early childhood was, you could say, up and down in a sense of, like, we were always moving, because um, my mom owned a shop when I was one, two, whatever. She had a shop in Neasden. No, when I was about, no, when we were about two, probably. Owned a shop in Neasden. And when we turned about six, seven, the shop storage room basically got robbed. So everything was taken. And I, I'm assuming my mom didn't have insurance and things like that. Because, you know, she's an immigrant, come over to this country. I guess she didn't even quite understand those things back in Nigeria. I don't think, especially back then, there was like insurance. You know, if your stuff gets stolen, your stuff, if your stuff gets stolen, it gets stolen. <laughs> What's the insurance? <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, so, so true. You know, which is always the hard thing when you go to other countries to run business, you don't always fully know their ways. So, you know, that gets robbed and now she has nothing. So she's fully broke. The long and short of it, because her and my dad broke up years before that and he went back to Nigeria she had to um well we were actually it's lot it's weird long to explain but we ended up homeless so 
I guess, you know, you can't pay the bills, you can't do this, you can't do that. I remember, you know, it being like, we're all right. And it's weird how things can just change almost so suddenly as well, because we were all right. The shop was downstairs. We lived above the shop. Great, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't think anything of, I didn't know any struggle. I didn't know, I don't, I'm not saying we were balling or nothing like that, but things were good or all right, weren't they? Just all right in it. Then suddenly, then suddenly, literally, I just remember one day, just, we had no food. I didn't, obviously, I'm a four-year-old or something like that, so I don't, I don't get what's going on, but I just remember we had no food. And me, my younger brother, so he's like three, my older brothers who were like nine and ten. And I just remember being like, is we all we had two slices of bread. And my mom was like, Oh, so you guys um cut it up and you guys will share it. And my older brothers were like, No, 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 let them they they can eat the let them eat the food. Me and my younger brother eat the, well, the two slices of bread or two or three slices of bread, right? And it was, it's weird because I said that happened, it felt like that happened overnight. And I guess it kind of did in a sense of like, it might have happened over the space of like a month, two months, three months, probably because of yeah. you don't get kicked out after missing one payment. <laughs> you know, yeah, a, few, a few would happen. But obviously when my mom's story thing got stolen, robbed, that was kind of like a changing point. And then suddenly we were homeless and um, we're on the streets, which, which is funny because I don't remember this part though. So it's almost like maybe I blocked it out because I remember the part of us having to leave the house. And I remember the the bread, you know, the night before the bread story. But then for some reason, it goes blank in my head. And then the next thing is we're in this kind of like, I guess, temporary accommodation. But in between, for some reason, I don't really remember. But, you know, in that in between, what happened in that time was, you know, homeless. Then, you know, my mom found a shelter to go to. Then, you know, they put you up in a shelter, then, you know, back and forth. Then they find your accommodation because a woman, you know, four children, young children as well. I guess quite quickly they, they found us a shelter. And then that's why we kept on um, moving so much because they kept on moving us from place to place. So then it's like I'm in school for like a few months then we're gone. Then it's like another school. I didn't know what was going on though. So my life, you could say, became stable when I turned 10 because that's when we moved somewhere and then we just stayed there until, you know, until whenever. So yeah, basically that was basically my childhood. You know, there's other things mixed in it, you know, um, all the different schools, different experiences, you know, one school I went to was very racist, like in Dollar Hill Lane, very racist. Me and my brother were the only two black children in the school. So um, I'm not sure if, I don't think they had really interacted with black people before because they didn't understand things. They thought, you know, our skin was just dirty. You know, you know um, literally. So um, the kids would be like, they just didn't want to be around me because I was that black kid, and you know, they made it very evident. Not even evident; they they said it. <laughs> they said it, you know. Yeah, of course. And I, I can I can relate to that as well. I went to a to a similar to a similar school in Hertfordshire, so I feel your I feel your pain on that one. It wasn't even indirect; it was direct. It was like they just let you know. And obviously, you look back and realize that they're only repeating what their parents had said because these are like six year olds; they don't know anything. Why would they dislike me? just what they're hearing their parents say you know so yeah there's all that kind of stuff there and, you know then 10 years old got stable school went to a secondary school around archway and you say life got stable i was into different things you know performing arts dancing emceeing um just like yeah so you got so you got some bars for us i'm <laughs> an MC back then like everybody no, I'll be honest. Though, I still write bars. Not, not. I don't write bars. I'm lying. I don't write bars, but I still make up verses now because of um. I just find it fun. 
just for the fun of it. It's not for anything. It's just fun. But yeah, it's a hobby that I guess kind of never leaves you. So now I, I completely understand. I mean, I can't say the same. I've got my my musical talents are very very limited. So I've I shied away from that one. But um, so so would you? Who would you say were your role models growing up? Obviously, you've spoken very fondly of your mum. So I assume she was probably one of your role models. But who else would you say was your um? Who did you look up to growing up? I guess different times, different people. Um. I had no, I had no role models who were in my life, in a sense, you know, outside of my mom, who I didn't really see as a role model. But I realized as I got older now, she was, and I took a lot of stuff from her without realizing. But it's your mom in it, you know. It's just kind of like it's just, it's just your mom. You're not thinking anything like that, <laughs> you know. So, I my role models were probably, you know, just people on TV. But it's weird. I don't think I even looked up to anyone until I was probably about. Probably about fourteen, which is weird. I didn't look up to anyone until then. I didn't. It's almost like I didn't have anyone to look up to. Because even it's weird. Where I grew up, well, it's it's weird to explain. But I just didn't have any role models then. They're just no one I looked to. But then you know, when I got into dancing, you know, I started getting role models in, like in the dancing world. You know, from you know Usher, you know, performer on TV, to the person you know when I was starting dance classes, the dance teacher becomes a role model. You know, and now you know I start emceeing. So. Start looking at your favorite MCs. Like my favorite MCs were this one guy called. Probably a lot of people wouldn't know who he was. Tuesday, he, he was my favorite MC, and then there's like D, who's also my favorite MC. So you know, you, you kind of like you have these kind of like these kind of role models in a sense, like not role. It's funny because they weren't role models for the way I want to live my life out, but in those sectors, and um, they were kind of like another you know, MC. Yeah, D, he's my favorite MC. Tuesday, favorite MC. You know, um, dancer. That person. So it almost like I had these role models in their different places. Um, you know, then I started in, you know, I got into got into rap later on when I was probably like 17, 18, because I was fully into garage before then. I didn't like rap before then. When I was 17, 18, I got into rap, and then at, at that point, it was um, like Jay-Z, who was my favourite rapper. So yeah, so it's weird, but, but the role models became people like, and they weren't people I looked up to, but people in my area, you know, like coming from a place where, you know, you're kind of broke, poor, you know, it's just like, well, that person's got money. So, you know, and it's it just a road guy. That guy, you know, from the area, he did, you know, he's known as the strongest or he's hard and, you know, and he's got money. <laughs> yeah, there's no real, like, ambition. It's more like, you know, it's like street cred in the environment rather than actual, you know, I can aspire to be like that guy and become someone, you know. Yeah, no, I'm with I never, yeah, I never wanted to be like them, but I still looked up to mm-hmm. them, but I didn't want to be like them. And I didn't want to do what they were doing, yeah, for sure. but I couldn't help but look up to them. Yeah, no, I completely understand that. I, I I feel the same. I feel like growing up, yeah, you see a lot of those figures, but you knew the life they were living wasn't, there was no longevity in it. It looked good for the short term and it served the purpose, but, you know, a lot of them now probably aren't, you know, you look back at the people you look up to, some of them probably are in, in the wrong places. So tell me about, um, also, whilst we're on this, you know, on this topic, let's talk about, you know, your first trip to the, to the barbershop or first trips, like, what was it like for you going to the barbershop when you were young? Tell me about your that experience. Well, I never went to the barbershop till I was about 14, no, 15 was my first trip to the barbershop. So I think Desmond was my, was my cultural reference of what a barbershop was like. The reason why I became a barber was literally because I was getting haircuts at home from my mum and older brothers. And, you know, the haircuts weren't that good. But I remember, like, for some reason, I always, they were you know, they were good. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I remember being, like, seven, eight years old, and we were living in Kingsbury in West London. 
And I don't know how it happened, but my older brothers and our next door neighbor were going to the barbershop. I don't know where the money even came from. We didn't have money, so I don't know where it came from. But I remember them excited going to the barbershop and talking about what haircuts they were going to get and coming back. And I remember saying, yeah, we're going to get this haircut, we're going to get that, this and that. And they came back excited, all three of them, my two older brothers, next door neighbor, just excited and just kind of like talking about their haircut they got. And, and I just remember standing there listening, thinking, when I get older and I go to the barbershop, I'm going to get this haircut. I'm going to get that haircut. So it's weird. Before I became a barber, I realized that I had a lot of um, yearning, this yearning for the barbers. That's why I was looking at people's haircuts on TV all the time. I remember the haircuts I looked at, which I was like, I'd love to have that haircut. Watching Hang Time, there's this program called Hang Time. There's this guy in Hang Time who had like a high fave, like a number three on top. And I remember saying, you know, when I get older, I go to the barbershop, I'm going to get a haircut. And when I did go to the barbershop for my first haircut, that's the haircut I got, which is like six, seven, six years later or something. Yeah, so my first experience in a barbershop, I went there with my friend who was getting a haircut. I was like 14, 15. And I just walked in there and I, and I was just kind of like a bit intimidating because first of all, just big men, you know, big old yardies as well. Like, you know, beer. And, and the thing is, back then it was casual as well. Some of the things which are not allowed to do in barbershops now, it was so casual back then. You know, they had the beer on the table. They were drinking beer while they were cutting hair. You know, um, they are watching the cricket, you know, you know, you know, something happens, ah, noise everywhere, this and that, you know, um, even if you get your hair cut and they stop for like half an hour to go outside and talk, it's just what they did. <laughs> that, that was that was the old school experience of the barbershop, isn't it? But I just remember being in there, just, it's weird, it just was just like, it was exciting for me, it was just like looking around and seeing the haircuts they're doing, I was watching, I was watching the haircuts being like, yeah, that's how you do, that's how you cut, because I was cutting hair at this time, cutting my own hair, and my little cousin, but I didn't know what I was doing. So I remember looking at them saying, and I remember saying, this is exactly what I said. I looked and I said, oh, that's how you do it. Oh, you put a line in it and then you fade it out. And I was excited. And I went home and grabbed my cousin who was living with me. I was like, put, put a line in and that was the best haircut I gave him to date. Because, you know, yeah, it was a good experience at first. Trip to the barbershop. Now, amazing. And what would you say in terms of everything you've spoken about? Because... I always joke with with some of my friends, you know, when we talk about experiences of growing up, and I always say the barbershop was like A&E, do you know what I mean? Growing up, you'd go in there and sometimes you'd be in there for hours. And like you said, it's chatting, the guys are going outside, there's so much going on. And, and you'd sit there and you're like, bloody hell, going to the barbershop was like six hours. But at the same time, it was such a, for me growing up, and I'm sure you can relate to this, it was an experience because there was so much going on and, and it was... I felt like barbershops were really at the center of black culture. And I just kind of wanted to get your, your take on it of how, you know, the barbershop is, you know, is almost intertwined into our, into our culture as a whole. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, when I did start going to the barbershop every now and then anyway, because I was cutting my hair. Yeah. You could go there and be there for hours the whole day. Like the second shop or third barbershop I went to, because basically I went to that barbershop every now and then I go there. Then I went to my friend's barbershop in Camden then I went to this other barbershop, which I started working in. It's a, you know, I've already worked in two barbershops, but the other barbershop I worked in was a shop I was going to. So every now and then I'd get my hair cut. And then I'd just chill in there with my friend whose older brother worked in there. And um, so that's when I really got, you could say, that barbershop experience because um, I was going there when I wasn't getting a haircut and chilling there and soaking up the environment with my friends or just chilling with whoever. And I remember just being in there thinking, being a spectator because the banter, the arguments, people are dissing each other. I remember just being in there watching 
this guy and he was kind of like he was funny and he was massive like hench right and he was kind of like you could say respected i guess because he's in the shop and the jokes are all centered all the jokes are coming from him he's dissing everybody everyone's laughing everyone's dissing that and he's getting it so i remember someone's in the chair and he was getting at them like and he was dissing them about you know and i think this guy had this guy had been rushed or something like that and he was dissing them about his black eyes and saying you know every week you come here you've got a different bruise um this and that and it just i remember just being like rah but nothing was happening it wasn't getting deep it wasn't getting <laughs> it, was, it was just <laughs> and but i was sitting there on the chair being like rah my man's dissing my my man's bruises and you know rah, you know i don't even want to look at my man's bruises on his face but and i just i just remember just that feeling of like it felt to some degree it felt safe it felt edgy, it just, but it felt safe because it was like, man, nothing's happening, nothing's going on, nothing's, it's just banter. Yeah, it doesn't get out of hand. Yeah, exactly. It was a good environment where people, you could literally, as you said, the banter's high and there's no kind of almost repercussions. There's no violence. It's just a real comfortable environment where everyone had fun. And you're right, like you end up spending, you know, when we were younger, you look forward to going to the barbershop because you knew it was more than just a haircut. You know, it's everything else that came with the people you met. And, you know, I remember sitting in the chair, we spoke, we talked about everything. People are arguing about what team do you support? And it was, yes, yeah, it was a real like culture hub. And I feel like it's probably still the same today. You know, I see some of your, your, your um, posts on Instagram and stuff where you guys have different conversations and, it, and it's, it's till this day, it's still very interesting, you know, and you kind of still, you look, I guess we'll never grow out of that. You always want to look forward to, you know, obviously lockdowns change that for now, but you know. We'll um we'll get back to the good times. And where did your journey start? So you've you've spoke to me about the passion of you know you're in the shop, you're seeing how they do it, you're learning the the tricks of the trade just by observation. So how do you then transition that into right? I'm going to become a barber. This is my career journey and progress that further. Okay, I'm going to skip out the whole story, but it was just literally picking up the clippers when I was 14, 13 or 14, probably 13, 14, cutting my own hair. Then, you know, messed up, still didn't have no money to go to the barbershop. So next haircut, cut myself again and just continue cutting myself. Then my little cousin started living with me from Nigeria. So I was like, yeah, I've got another customer. He's, he's seven years old. <laughs> you know, I'm just enjoying it. <laughs> and his mom was like, oh, yeah, you know, he needs a haircut. I said, yeah, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. <laughs> so, you know, that happened. Then I started cutting my younger brother. And then... um. It just started happening. I started cutting people around my area, you know, just friends like, oh, I'll give you a trim. Let me cut your hair. Let me cut your hair. Then suddenly it started going around that if you can't make it to the barbershop, this is what happened. They'll be like, oh, go to Mark's house or Slider's house, whatever they called me back then. Slider was my nickname, you know, from that yeah. um, when I was emceeing at 13, 14. So people just yeah. come to my house, just cut their hair. Then I just started, I just started enjoying it. It wasn't even a career for me at the time. So I go around to people's houses around my area, you know, cut their hair. I wasn't even getting paid. I was just, I was just, I was just enjoying it. So how it changed into a career was when I was 18, I'd been cutting hair, cutting my hair every three days for the last three years or something like that, cutting my little cousin, cutting people in my area. I've got like, you know, people are saying, you know, I'm a good barber now. So I saw yeah. that shop that I was going to every now and then to get my hair cut and was chilling in, you know, when the people were getting dissed and cussed and I was just watching them and my friends, all the brothers were working. My brother would yeah. go there and get his hair cut. And he said to me, I was better than one of their barbers. So for a joke, I saw the manager on the street and I was just like to him, oh, yeah, 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 I'm better than your barber in the shop. And he was like, yeah, yeah, you are, yeah? All right, cool, you know, come and work here. And 
for the work. And I was like, oh, right. I, I was joking. <laughs> but then every time he saw me, every time he saw me, he was just like, you know, so when you come into work, when you come into work. And at this time, I, I also got offered this place in my, my auntie knew something like, you know, this kind of like African kind of like phone shop type thing, you know, just like, you know, like, and my auntie told me that, you know, they got a space, they want to do a barbershop there so you can come and work there. So I was thinking about it. And long and short of it, I ended, I ended up accepting in that shop because I thought they kept on bothering me. And yeah. the reason why I didn't want to accept it originally was because I felt that if I mess someone up, a real client, I can't mess up a real client because that's in a shop, that's a real client. That's not my friends or people from my area. But I eventually did that and I was working in there around um, around college. And then when I finished college, I decided I didn't want to go to uni to do what I was doing in college, which was performing arts, drama and stuff like that. So I said, you know, I'll just keep working in the barbershop until I figure out what, what I want to do. And then through that time, I done like a personal training course, done a social work, access to social work course, evening courses. And I just realized when I was 24, actually, after doing different things, I thought, actually, barbering is 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 me. I, I, I think, you know, this is actually my career. I enjoy it. I'm good at it. I'm making money from it. And I don't, I've dabbled in other things. This is what I want to do. And that's how it, it just came about. Yeah, no, do you know what? And would you say from, I'm sure you, you've kind of pretty much answered this, but I'd like to hear your take on it again a bit. But, you know, in terms of, as you said, about career path. So you've gone, you've tried all these various things, but in that process of kind of going and doing the other courses and the performing arts, did you kind of always know, like in your gut to say, you know what, actually, I should be doing barbering, but I don't know if that's a, a enough of a career path for me to pursue. And so I'm going to go and try all these things first. Or was it kind of more, uh, do you know what, barbering is not really my thing just yet. Maybe I've got other interests. Because, you know, sometimes people get deterred from career paths because they go, yeah, but that's not going to pay me. That's not going to buy me a house, you know, type thing. And I, and I feel like barbering back then could have potentially been one of those things. Now, I mean, we all know that as a barber, you can you, you can pretty much do anything, you know. It wasn't even that. You know what it was? It was more so... I never jumped into it to be a career. So, you know, like I never ever said to myself, oh, do you know what? I want to be a barber. I was just doing it. So for like three, four years, four and a half years from like 13, 14 to 18, I was just cutting hair because I actually enjoyed it. You know, um, so it was a hobby, but it was just something I enjoyed. So I never thought of it even as a career. I never thought about, I'm going to work in a barbershop. I was just doing something I enjoyed. That's so why I went to people's houses and cut their hair for free because I enjoyed I'm doing it. So when I was even doing the other when I was even doing the other things, none of that none of that stuff ever affected my barbering because I when I did like the personal training course, I did it as an evening course. So I'd finish work and then go do the course. When I done the social work one, it was an evening course as well, Monday to Wednesday. So I'd finish work and then go and do study that. So I made sure also that anything I was doing, I was doing it outside of my of my work. So yeah, I never got deterred. And what was fortunate and I leave on this. The most fortunate thing I did, which is an important thing for anyone to know, was even in the time when I wasn't seeing barbering as the career thing I was going to do for life, I treated it like the career thing I was going to do for life. So I studied it. I I sat there. I studied the barbers. I did everything I could. I worked from early to late. Every hour I could, I worked. So you would think the way I was working, I was like, yeah, this is this is his thing. But no, at the time, I wasn't thinking that. But I have this thing that whatever you do, you do to the best of your ability. If you're in it, be in it. So when I decided I wanted to be a barber, I'm actually, this is my career at 24. I didn't have to go back and change anything. It's okay, let me start 
being serious and let me start acting right or let me become a good barber now because I was already doing that. Now, do you know what? And, I, and I'm so glad that you've touched on that because this goes back to the whole thing about passion, right? And and to be honest with you, I'm glad you've said that because I'm honest with myself. There's times in, in my short career thus far where I haven't taken that approach, you know, of whatever you do, do it, you know, go all in as if you're treating it as a career. Because sometimes you think, oh, people just think, oh, this is a side or this is that. But your approach clearly shows that sometimes the thing you probably think oh, is just a hobby is actually your gift and everything else you're doing is, you know, you're, you're testing the waters. So, yeah, I think that's sound advice because when you look at, you know, most successful people, they've got a very similar story to you. It's the thing they're most passionate about that ends up taking them to the heights, not the thing they thought, you know, you know, everyone gets taught, go to university, get a degree, get a decent job from there. But, you know, for a lot of people, it doesn't work out that way. So, and when you look at, you know, your Jeff Bezos and all these guys, your Jay-Zs of this world, they're all mega successful with zero, you know, like Jay-Z, especially zero degrees to his name, but you know, he's up there. So also, so how did you transition from, obviously you're working, going from like DL Barbers where you were working and doing your thing to then having like an amazing client list, you know, AJ, LeBron, Tiny. I mean, you were cutting like the, you know, these are elite athletes and elite entertainers so how what was the transition from from that role at dl to then building your own black book of these you know a-list clients well the transition happened at dnls sorry yeah <laughs> dnls yeah. um yeah so the transition um in my career you know from working at dnls to open my shop and all the you know clientele and things you're talking about well to be fair majority of the clients we're talking about it happened while i was at dnls when i cut lebron james i was at dnls tiny temper Anthony Joshua, Reggie Yates, Stormzy, you know, the list goes on. I was I was there. So what was happening was the way DNLs were set up was you rent a chair there. So, you know, just you rent your space, it's your space. Whatever you make, whatever you make. If you make zero, um, you make zero, you pay your rent. If you make hundred thousand pounds, you pay your rent. Whatever the case is, you just own that space to pay for your space. So that suited um a mindset like mine, because I'm a grafter to be very honest, like from before, take money out of it, I just graft. Like I always knew that if I worked for someone, I'd always be like a very good worker for someone. Like, so I'm not even a grafter because, you know, I graft for myself. Just, if I worked for you, I'd work hard. <laughs> if I'm working the same with you, I'd be, I'd be stacking them shelves. I'd be working hard. I wouldn't be trying to do what I can just get away with doing. And that, so that mindset, especially works out when you're working for yourself. <laughs> Because that means I took on every opportunity that came along and, um, you know, worked all the hours, you know, pushed myself out there. You know, when I was 23, 24, I built a website for myself. And that was something that a lot of majority of barbers in the UK probably never had. You know, I was one of the first, you know, outside of the big chain stores, you know, the big, you know, barbershops. No one had websites. And I remember starting a website because not because I had this foresight. I was just like, um, I'm a business, so I should have a website. So I bought a website, I was only one page, had my name on it, my number, and my address where I worked. That was it. But I got a lot of clients from that. From that, Because when people were searching online, the only barber that showed up was me. When they typed in black barber, Afro hair barber, nothing showed up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's genius. Yeah, it's genius. I'm yeah, the only one that sure. showed up. So I, didn't, I, didn't even, I didn't even need this big, good website. I just needed a contact page. You know, 
and then you know it, then it moved on to um like instagram and you know facebook and all that stuff there when that came out i was like you know wow this is good because i can put my work out on it and this is where you know some of this work came like anthony joshua tiny temper reggie yates they came because they saw my instagram they were watching my instagram and they liked what i was doing the work i was putting out there they liked the message i was putting out there and they're like oh yeah they want to cut with me you know so yeah i got them as clients you know lebron james is a different story that was coming from cutting a random guy in the barbershop one day, one random Wednesday. I cut this guy. That was it. A year later, he came back in. And I cut him again. Now he was waiting for me because the last time he came in a year before, I cut him. But now he was waiting for me. And I didn't know what was. He's this tall, dark-skinned black guy. But he had, a, and he had an American accent. So I just talked to him. Then he tells me, oh, yeah, he's an NBA player. He plays for the Houston Rockets. And I was like, okay, cool. Um, so every time he came back to London, because he's originally from London, He'd come to get a haircut from me. So when the Olympics came over, he plays in the NBA. He's an NBA player. They're like, you know, you know, Pops, his name's Pops Mensa. You're from London, you know, any barber, any recommendations? Like, yeah, you deal with my barber. Then that's how I cut LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and just the rest of the basketball team, you know. So basically, the moral of the story was there isn't really one way to get clients, but what it was was me working hard, me offering a good service, me offering a good product. Because obviously that guy who came to the shop, he was a quote-unquote nobody to me. He was just a customer. But I gave him a good haircut because you're just a customer in the shop. I, I, there was no intention of me thinking anything was going to come from it. But, you know, suddenly I get that opportunity to cut, you know, the basketball team. You know, and then Instagram. I'm just putting my work out there. Anthony Joshua, Tiny Temper, they're not actually physically following me. But they're watching my page. I don't know they're following me. I can't see their names. So they're interviewing me and I don't know that I'm in the interview. You know, and the thing is, this is, a, this is actually a chapter in my book. I've got a book, Shape My Culture. And there's a chapter called You're Always in the Interview. And this is the example of always being in an interview. As long as someone can see you, they're interviewing you. You don't even have to know they're looking at you, but they're interviewing you. So the best thing in life to do is not to try and be the right person when you feel that the right person is there or watching, but it's to become the right person full stop. Because someone technically is always watching. Mm. And that's how basically a lot of these things just came to pass. And then, you know, I decided, you know, I told, I decided I wanted to open up my own shop because I wasn't in my own shop. I was managing that shop. It wasn't mine. I told the owners, I told the other manager, yeah, I'm going to go open up my own shop. And then like, you know, three years after I told them that, I opened up my own shop. And then, you know, then it kind of like things fully settled, you know, into establishing. Because what was happening at that time was, I'm a barber in a shop. So there's only so much you can do anyway. But I done well. And what happened was my brand became bigger than what the business actually was. So people kept on coming to the shop saying, oh, I thought Slider Cuts was the name of the shop. And I'm like, nah, Slider Cuts is, is me. You know, that's why I always refer to me, you know, as Slider Cuts. But they were kind of like, you know, because of some of the brand collaborations I had done, you know, being adverts, this billboards, all these different things. It made it look like, oh, it must be bigger than a person working out of a chair. So the brand was bigger than the business. And so the when I got finally the, the establishment, I was only ca- I was catching up with the brand. So the business was actually catching up with where the brand was. And here's a question for you whilst we're on this. Obviously, as you said, you built the buzz. And as you said, the, the buzz made the name slider cuts. People thought this is a lot bigger than one individual. So you've got that now, which I guess is probably the, the, the strongest thing you can have in any business, right? Is a, is a real strong brand name. So in terms of 
taking the leap of faith of, okay, DNLs, look, you know, obviously you're grateful for the opportunity. You've worked hard there. What steps did you then take to opening your own shop? And this is more for, you know, young people out there who might, who might be kind of in that position where they're like, mm, do I try and open a shop or do I kind of work in a barber shop and rent a chair? Because, you know, so I just kind of wanted you to touch on that so people just kind of understand the journey that obviously doesn't one it doesn't happen overnight and how to make the most informed decision well yeah as I said for me it was three years from when I made that decision that I was going to open up my own shop I didn't open up a shop till three years later so the longest part first of all was finding an establishment you know and that it was good that it took long and it's good that I was as thorough as I was or else I would have made a mistake by just choosing a random location you know, and it's important, you know, from young, I've always heard this, you've always heard this. I think before I even knew what it meant, I kept in here, location, location, location. I always heard this term growing up and it's it's so important. Pick your location right. So what I did was I started looking at the areas I'd like to work in and I started looking at things like the census, which is kind of like, because I knew my demographic was, you know, majority of my clients are, you know, are black clients, you know, African-Caribbean clients. So it's like, I need to find a location that has those clients there, you know, there's no point in being like, I'm just going to go to Doncaster because <laughs> they've got a shop there, you know, but, you know, the, the customer you serve, are they there? <laughs> <laughs> shout, out to, shout out to Doncaster. Though. I've got some good friends up that way. <laughs> yeah, I say Doncaster because I stayed there when I was younger with my auntie who lives up there, you know, one of the few black families in, in Doncaster. <laughs> so, so shout out Doncaster. I got love for, I mentioned Doncaster because I got love for Doncaster, actually. So... Look at the census, stuff like that. Then I looked at areas that had black people in it, but never had a barbershop. So what I was doing was I was looking for a need instead of actually just replicating someone else's blueprint. Because everybody told me, why don't you just go to Dalston? Why don't you just go to here? Why don't you just go to here? there? Because they had seen that loads of barbershops there. So they're like, they're doing well. So if you go there as well, you know, you're probably going to do even better than them because your brand's bigger than theirs. And I was just like, well... I don't really want to move in on anyone's space one. Um, they're like, yeah, but you won't be in trouble. You'll probably shut them down. I was like, well, I don't actually want to shut down any business. That's not my intention. I don't, I'm not going into business to shut down other businesses. Yeah, for sure, yeah. You're not a bailiff. <laughs> I think that's just not whack business, but I just don't respect that business mind that your thing is, oh, he's done it there, so I'm just going to go there. And I feel like, why not look for where you're needed? And that's what I did. Like you said, where is there an empty space, a gap where there's no one around me, but, the, 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 but there is a clientele base around there. And that's where I found in Shoreditch. I was like, right, in Shoreditch, actually, you're right next to Homerton, um, Haggerston, Dalston, um, in Shoreditch as well, Hoxton. In Shoreditch itself, there's loads of black people live, still living in there. People might not realize it, you know, um, as well as other clients, obviously white people, Asian people. Right, this is the spot. To be in, I looked at the closest barbershop. They said there's one end of Hoxton, there's one Hackney Central. I was like, but there's none there. So I said, that's where I want to be. So I said, you know, so now I need to, now I know the lo area. I need to find the lo location. So then I said, what do I want in this location? I said, has to have parking outside, be near travel links, near like um train stations, um bus travel, and I just mapped out all these things right and all these requirements. So then I went on Zoopla, went on Right Move, went on random sites looking at what was available. You know, when that didn't kind of work, you know, looked at different places and most of them never, or majority of them, they never had any parking. Or if they had parking, it was kind of like too far out. 
So what I did was, and this is actually how I found the place, what I did was I said, okay, let me do this instead. I'm going to hit the roads. Um, any business that I feel has the perfect location for me, I'm going to knock on their door and ask them if I can buy their place. So I just hit the roads, knocking on people, saying, oh, would you be willing to sell your lease or are you thinking about it? No, 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 no. You know, then get to one place. And this place actually, funny enough, was the location I actually wanted. The spot I'm in now was the actual perfect location. There was no other location I would take over this location. This is the one which I wanted. I knocked on their door and I said, you know, I know this, I said, this is them and they don't know me, but by any chance, do you want to sell your lease or you're looking to get rid of your lease or, you know what, we are thinking about it actually. And I said, cool, I'll, I'll be willing to take it. How much? Then got into talk and this and that. And that's how I basically got that um, space. You know, it was just about going out there. It was doing more than just being like, I'm just going to hit online. Hit the roads. Like people are so afraid of real connection nowadays. It's kind of like if you can't do it digitally, digitally, you just don't do it at all. Two years ago, I went to a talk. Um, I got invited to a talk by, you know, uh, one of my contacts and an our friend who was working at a, an account, a big four accountancy firm. And the guy who spoke was the founder of Pure Gym. I can't remember, was it Robert? I can't remember the guy's name anyway. He's the founder. He was the founder and CEO of, of Pure Gym. And he spoke at length of how they built Pure Gym, you know, and he said how, you know, they, they saw the concept was in America, how they came. And he was explaining how they launched Pure Gym. They went to cities and they looked at, okay, this is a uni town. Similar, to, exact similar process to what you've been describing. They went on the ground, you know, and they really looked at different markets and they actually tested Pure Gym in like a uni town in a more residential, in a more business. And they found that, wow, it's working across all locations. And that's how kind of they started to scale across the country. And, and, it, and it was exactly similar to what you're saying is they looked at the need. Okay, in this area, there's no gym that's 24 hours, that's affordable. There's only a, a virgin that costs an arm and a leg. Actually, in this area, there's a lot of people who could you know, use a gym like this. So I think it's great to see and hear what you're saying, which is why I was saying that you're you're more than a barber because you already had that business acumen and it's not, you know, just off pure hustle and just knowing that you had an ambition. And this is the same information you provided, honestly, is the same information I heard from the guy who founded Pure Gym, just in a in his own way. But there's, you know, there's no difference to exactly what you've said. And, it, and, it's, and it's great to hear that because sometimes young people always look at information and things the wrong way and actually... F hustle figure it out that's what you did you 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 saw your you know you found your passion you worked hard you put the hours in and you start to look okay how do I go and find a shop let's get on the streets let's all these little stories you tell I think they're really really good you know pieces of information that if people took away that you know anything is possible so so yeah no power to you and also you know with the awards and everything you know the highlights and the accolades you know the you won the Black British Business Awards in 2018, your nomination, obviously, for the Evening Standard. I mean, that must, for you, and, and I want to hear from you, but obviously it must feel great to also see your work, you know, coming to life and being rewarded for all those, you know, painstaking days going, like you said, from being from, from being homeless to now, you know, being, being a business leader and someone who's really important, not only in, in Black culture, but in shape of that other industry in this country. Yeah, um, the awards, yeah, they're good. Um, the Black British one, no, it's, it's 
these awards have been good, right? But it's not until way after them I realized how good they actually are. But in the in the moment, I don't think I I don't think I actually um took it in properly or um really <laughs> soaked it up, whatever it is. I, I I don't think it took me a while to actually realize, like, all right, actually, I won this award because I you know I, I won previously about two other I think I won two other awards, but they were you know, I won this other award which is a hair award, so. I enjoyed it, it was good, but for me, that was expected for me to win something in the hair industry. I was almost like, not that, not that arrogant, like, oh, I should win, but I mean, like, that makes sense. It limits everything down to people only in the hair industry. But to win that business award, that was massive because I was like, right, this wasn't, I wasn't up against other people who were in the hair industry. I was just up against other businesses doing whatever, coders, bankers, like literally, like bankers, different people. I was like, after winning that, I was like, this one, I think I cherish the most, not because it's like you know bigger than another award, but because it's outside of my field, you know. And even like the even standard one, even though I didn't win that one, I you know I didn't. You know when you don't take in stuff like I'm on the table right, and I'm sitting, I'm sitting on the same table as the person who owns Greg's. You know, Greg's Bakery. You know, I'm next to a guy who owns, I can't remember the, the hotel chain, but the hotel, some hotel chain in uh, four prominent hotels in London, right? Big hotels, like very expensive hotels, right? And I'm sitting next to him and he's just talking to me. You know, we follow each other on Instagram. Every now and then he even message me. And I don't think I even at the time, for some reason, I feel like maybe I take time to, but it's like, right. It's like not winning wasn't even the biggest issue. I got nominated for an award, right? And I'm in the room with billionaires, like the person who owns Tottenham was nominated for an award. He didn't show up, but he wanted his representative show, showed up, right? But you know, when you look back, you start thinking, are you realising? <laughs> you know, so yeah, so it, the, the awards are are good. You know, I'll tell people, you know, awards aren't the be-all and end-all. They can't, you know, you can win an award and have a failing business. So, you know, don't make the award the end goal. You know, the, the end goal should be the success of your actual business. And then from that, these things come, but it shouldn't be chasing those things there because, you know, you could be blindly chasing awards while your business is actually just sinking because, you know, you're doing everything to be recognised for an award. So, um, yeah, so the awards, awards are good. You know, they're good to, like, points to make you realise, OK, you're being recognised for the thing you're doing. Yeah, and, you know, whilst we're on the subject of, of business, as I said, even you mentioned in the Evening Standard Awards, and that's what, for me, that's what's so impressive is not only did you master the craft and the art of being a barber, but you also mastered and understood the art of business and entrepreneurship. Because as you know, and I know, the idea of setting up a business, you go on company's house, is 15 pounds, you're incorporated, you've got a company, you go on Squarespace, it's 25 pounds, you have a website. There's so many things you can do that are quite easy, but then actual, the fundamentals of running a business is cash flow, balance sheets, P&Ls, paying staff, employing, managing the books, right? You know, and I know again. Dealing with staff. Dealing with staff personalities and clashes. <laughs> it's a whole different beast. And you seem to have really taken that on and, you know, just gained all these skills and, and managed to turn, you know, to, to build a business. So I just wanted you to touch a bit on, you know, what it took to develop those skills and, you know, why you've you've taken on the mantle of obviously, you know, being really passionate about passing it on to the, to the next generation as well. Um, I think, well, I didn't go to business school. And I didn't study business in uni, so or in college. 
So I kind of had a knack. I remember being 22, 23 and talking to my uncle, my auntie, and I was saying, I think, you know, I really want to go into like doing business and maybe doing a business school because I just have all these thoughts and all these ideas and I'm always trying to set up things, you know, even though loads of failed businesses. Oh, I'm 18 years old. I set up this clothing line, failed business. You know, didn't make any money, just lost money, whatever in it. But then, you know, next thing happens and it's like, I'm setting up this and I'm trying this and I'm trying that. So I think I had a knack for it. And also I think coming from where I'm coming from, my mum was always hustling. So like my mum, like my mum, you know, like plantain chips. I don't know. Where, where are you from? Country? Oh, my parents are Zimbabwean. Okay. I don't know if you know Chin Chin. These like Nigerian little biscuit things. Yes. So my mum used to make them and then, you know, we'd be in the kitchen, literally. It, this sounds so dodgy, right? In the kitchen, weighing it, bagging it, <laughs> putting the labels on it, sealing the bag, and then we'd have to go deliver it to the shop that she was selling them to. I think all of those things subconsciously put something into my head about business and just grafting and just doing stuff. So yeah, as I got older, I was just always thinking about what you should be doing as a business. And even like when I opened up my first website, there was no foresight. I wasn't doing it because I was like, this is going to get me that. It was as simple as I'm a business. Businesses should have their own website. So I opened up a website. I didn't even know the benefits that were going to come from it. Same thing with Instagram. I was just like, I'm a business. I should be using my Instagram to promote my business. You know, I didn't see what was going to come from it. So, you know, all the things I've been doing, I just realized I had a knack of just constantly pushing. So in me doing all these things, I started realizing that people that come from where I come from, unless you go down the road of, you know, you go to college, you study business, then you go to university, you study, you study business of some sort. A lot of people don't think that they can go into business unless it's something illegal or unless it's something which is even like a basic exchange of, you know, what do you do? You know, I buy and sell cars. Unless it's something like, not, I'm not demeaning that business, I'm saying, but there, there are things, where we come from, there are things that culturally and urbanly we see in our reach, but there's things outside we don't see in our reach. We just don't think. So when I got into this position and it's like, you know, I've done all of this, right? Not coming from a rich family, not having all this money to back me, not, not having the education of business, right? So I just made me realize a lot of people can do the same thing. And there's a lot of people potentials which aren't even being fulfilled or reached because they don't think that they can do it or they don't think they have the resources. So well, every time I learn something or I learn from my mistakes, because a lot of these things I learned as well, I learned from mistakes, you know, like just making mistakes, you know, oh, how did I learn that, you know, you have to pay for bins as a business? Because I would put out the bins normally and they'd find me. <laughs> when I was managing the other shop, that's what happened. They came and said, No, you're putting your bins outside. I said, Yeah, just like, like I do at home, I put my bins outside. They said, No, 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 no. That's not how you do it. So I'm like, You have to pay. I said, I didn't know that. They said, That's not our business. They said, Oh, you're fine. I said, But I didn't know though. They said, That's not our business. I said, But I didn't know it's not our business. Fine, pay the fine and start paying for your bags. I said, Cool, no problem. So a lot of the things I learned, I just learned from my mistakes, right? And I just thought, yeah. I just want to keep it to me. I just want to like teach other people the things that I've learned along the way because there's a lot of people who can be doing more and they just don't realise it. So I guess even my voice is a good voice because I don't come from, you know, super privilege, you know, and I don't... And also just like, I'm not bigger than anybody else. I guess people don't look at me even now and think I'm bigger than them either. I feel like I'm still on the same level. So, um, and also I've just realised in business, a lot of people just hide so much stuff. There is this mentality of not wanting to tell people. So I have I have people tell me all the time, why do you give out this information for free? Or, you know, are you not scared about your competitors taking on this information? And and it's just kind of like, 
yeah, it won't, uh, there's a lot of this mentality of like, I want to get up there. And once I'm up there, I don't really want anybody to be <laughs> beside me, right? But I kind of want my peers to be beside me. <laughs> 100%. I always feel like, exactly like you said, when you're in a thriving space, right, you need competition. And actually going back to what you said, just because everyone you can give, and I, this one of the things I remember from university, my lecturer always used to say to me, right, she always used to say, 10 of you can sit down, I can give you the exact same paper, exact same resources, revision, go and do it. And she said, but when you come back, there's going to be 10 sets of results. Because she said, it's not the information that's presented in front of you. It's what you do with it. And I guess, you know, it's it's similar to what you're saying is, look, hey, give the blueprints to my competitors and give them the information. But at the end of the day, are they willing to go through all the sacrifices, all the hard work? And the reality is most people aren't. Let's be honest. Most people go through tough times and they go, oh, do you know what? It's not for me. And, and business, unfortunately, and life isn't just, especially in the communities we come from, it's not as kind to just think, you know, you can tr like life's going to be all sunshine and roses. There's a lot of tough. And I feel like your upbringing and all the struggles and challenges, you know, I, I come from a single parent background, you know, and watching my mum as well, you know, sharing some of the stories you shared, watching her struggle and work and, you know, make sure that I had football boots, do this, do that. And all the work she did today, honestly, I use that f as fuel to drive me when I'm working, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't see challenges. I'm like, look, this isn't a real problem. I've seen real problems. I've seen my mom struggling and going through this. That's a real problem. Okay. I've lost an opportunity or this hasn't gone my way. Okay. I might two minutes, three minutes, half an hour, an hour. I might be upset about it, but it's okay. Tomorrow we wake up and we push and we go again, you know? So, and I, and I think you have the similar mentality of just pushing through and fighting for, you know, for what you believe in. So, um, you know, I really respect that. And I just wanted to move on now to the to the book as well. Um, Shape and Culture, obviously, is the is the book you you released. So yeah, tell me a bit a little bit about, you know, the inspiration behind the book and the the message or the impact you wanted the book to have as well. Yeah, the book, the message of the book is it's really ultimately a business book. It's almost like the first five steps to business, the first five steps that never get addressed. In business books because you know they always start from a certain place with the assumption that everybody already knows the very basics so if you read any business book if you listen to any business talks there's always the assumption like you know so you so here's a typical thing you probably i don't know you read business books you listen to business lectures yeah so this is so you know this would be a typical thing you'll hear so i'll be like yeah so when i started i didn't really have anything and you know i had a decent job but, you know, I followed my passion and I quit my job and I put all the money I saved up into my business, you know, because I believed in my business. And first of all, my thing is kind of like, OK, so you're starting from a place of having money. Cool. That doesn't relate to most of the people I know. That goes out in the door. Someone else will be like, you know, I was in a bad situation, this and that. I borrowed this money off my parents. What do you call it? Um, I had to pay it back over five years, 10 years, this and that. OK, so you had access to money. That takes away a lot of people, which I know. Or <laughs> a lot of people, which I know. Isn't that, you know, um, I remortgaged my house and took the money out and I put it into this. It takes away a lot of the people I know. So you listen to these things, right? I feel like the first five steps, right, aren't ever really addressed because a lot of people which are talking come from a place where they're already a few steps in front. Or not even in front, but they're already, not in front, they're already a few steps into the race, basically. So their parents or their grandparents might have that story of the first 
five steps that they took to put their children in a better position. That's what we ultimately want to do. My son or my sons should never start where I'm at. My sons should never have the first five steps in their life because I should have covered that for them, right? But it means that he won't be able to fully speak to an audience of people which have none of these things or not coming from any success or coming from any privilege whatsoever. So I just realized there's a big audience who are not catered to and they don't know. And they, when they listen to these things, they don't feel these things relate to them because how? You know, you talk about, you know, go get a loan, but most of the people I know have got bad credit. You know, you came in too late. You should have told us this about bad credit. You should have told us about credit when we were 13. You tell us about credit when now we're hearing about credit when we're 20. It's too late. They fucked all the EE bills. <laughs> <laughs> they took out their credit card already. Uh, <laughs> I didn't realize. <laughs> no, do you know the reality? Uh, yeah, no. we, spoke, we got told about it way too late. <laughs> you know, so in this book, it was kind of like, actually, well, let's address people. So it's written towards young people. So anyone from 13 can read this book, one. It's very simply written, very plainly written, right? Very simple concepts. But taking on these concepts in life will actually help you in your approach to business. So this isn't about, I know there's a chapter about me setting up my business, but it's not actually about how do you set up business and run business. No, it's your approach to business. But there's so much that goes before it. You know, so much, so people which set up brands, right? This is a common thing. You know this, you know this, 100% you know this from the areas we grew up in, right? There's people we knew in illegal things, right? And there were people which decided to work within that illegal world, as an example. And there's people in there who decided just to take off other people within that illegal world because they didn't want to work. But what happened is with those people there, they completely get blacklisted because you're just a thief. You're a robber. And people don't trust you. You know, you go around that person, that person's a robber. He's going he, he, to rob you. But then you decide to change your life around, right? I don't realize that that same brand that you have created follows you. That's your brand. You're a robber. So you open up a shop. You open up this business. But I don't trust you because you're a robber. You know, you're, you're this, you're that. You know, your brand has followed you. So you're, you might be doing the right things even in your business, but where a lot of businesses start off with our peers and our local communities, the brand that you've already created for yourself is the thing that's going to follow you into your business. And it's just about, and it's basically this whole book was just about explaining a lot of these basic concepts, like you're always in an interview. Like, you know, this whole thing which I speak to people about when they're like, you know, you can't judge me off my Instagram. I'm like, why can't I judge you off your Instagram? Oh, because, you know, that might not be me, that might be this and that. Right? I said, you're the one who put out a picture and a video. <laughs> if there's anything I want to judge you off, it's going to be the thing that you put out of yourself. Hundred <laughs> percent. No, I couldn't agree more. I've I've never understood that as well. When people say, "Oh, you can't, um, you can't judge people based off Instagram and all this stuff," and I'm like, "Well, as you've rightly you've said, you were putting a perception and pictures out into the world. We don't know who you are. We've never spoken to you. So all we're going to do is we go off face value. Same way someone goes on LinkedIn, right? On LinkedIn, people look at who you are, your job title, what company you work for, what industry you're in, right? And if they're interested in that space, then they connect with you and you start to talk. I think it's the same as Instagram. It's a shop window. And, and unless you manage that correctly... I mean, it's it's to your it's to your success or your detriment. It's a choice at the end of the day, I think. So I think you put it out there. And my thing is also, if you want to live in this bubble where you believe that things should be like, oh, when I come into the interview, suddenly that's when you interview me, then you can live in that world, but no one else is living in that world. And this is what the book was even trying to talk about. It was trying to give people some reality checks about how business even works. Like there's one chapter which didn't make it into the book, which will be in a part two that I do, which is just said called which is just called um the world keeps moving. The whole point of it was that no matter what happens, 
the world doesn't stop. Now, you could be having a business and you could have valid reasons why you need to stop or pause or take a break. There could be a loss in your family. You could be getting mental health issues. You could get into breaking point. You need to break. And it's like, I'm not saying that you shouldn't stop. Stop. Take the break. But that doesn't mean that your competitors have stopped because you've got a valid reason. <laughs> like, the world doesn't work for you. You have to bend to the rules of the world. The world's not going to stop and change direction because suddenly that you want it to stop. And it's just kind of like teaching people a lot of these basic things. And this is why I mean the approach to business, understanding it. Because I have people who talk and have this entitled feeling where it's kind of like, and they really, it comes, their entitlement comes from not even privilege. It comes from not having. So believing that the world owes them something because they never got before. And I understand it. We, we, a lot of us come from these situations. So it's like, you know, I, was, I grew up broke, I grew up in this, I grew up in that. And it's unfortunate. So it's not like me demeaning or being like, oh, it doesn't mean anything. But my point is, because you grew up in that situation does not now mean that the world suddenly is going to pay you back. <laughs> you know, so this is what the book was. It's just about, and just like, I was addressing a lot of things that I was hearing in the barbershop from young people and just being like, right, this is how a lot of the people in my culture think. And I think we really need a reality check and we really need to rethink the way we do things, the way we look at things. Like, you know, I'll give enough I'll leave it on this thing. I'll give another chapter, which is called Goals. And the goals just came up because I just realized that most of us do not know how to set goals correctly. And when I did this kind of like unofficial survey in the shop, I kept on asking young guys, you know, what are your goals in life? What do you want to do? And majority of people said the same thing to me in different words, but the same thing, you know. Most people just said, I want to, I want to be rich, you know. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get money. I want to be rich. Cool. You know, where we come from, especially everybody thinks that, you know, especially when you're younger, right? But when I was asking them how, Oh, no, when I was asking them to do what, a lot of them couldn't answer me. They're like, you know, I want to do whatever I want to do. That's what I want to do. I was like, yeah, and what is that? You know, whatever I want to do. And I'm like, yeah, cool. So what is that thing you want to do? Most people set goals which are actually short of their actual goals. So we got given this mindset that we believe that money is a goal. And money's not a goal. Money's only a mediator between you and your actual goal. It's, you know, it's an exchange. So if you enjoy traveling and you enjoy holidays, and because you just enjoy seeing new things, then £3,000 isn't the goal. It's the mediator between you and your actual goal. And you might even realise that if you stop focusing on money as well, you might realise there might be other options out there to actually get your goals outside of money. You know, most of the time it will be money. You can exchange services, you can do certain things, you can maybe find deals, but when you're so focused on everything just being about money, you're actually never living out any goals because you never actually stop to say, what are the things I actually want out of life? What do I enjoy actually doing? And what is the reason why I enjoy these things? So I guess that's why I wrote the book. I've just kind of like, I've seen issues in my community. I've seen things, I've seen things that, you know, I was fortunate enough to come um, out of. And um, I just like, I just want to address this and help other people. And that's why the book is so cheap because it's five pounds, you know? And I said to people, you know, I can't be talking about, I'm trying to sell this to my community and then sell it for 10 to 20 pounds because at the end of the day, I'm dealing with a poor demographic reality so you know it has to be as cheap as possible you know all the people i speak to I always say to them do you ever eat takeaway food then yeah then you can afford my book 100 <laughs> percent, and at, and at five pounds you know what it's true if you're not willing to make such a small investment in your in your future and, and learning and honestly to be honest slider like i've got just even looking here i always when i do these podcast interviews i've got we've got like a a stack of books in my place right it's like that's where I spend a lot of my money. Yeah, it's like it's like just Amazon is just books, books, books. And it's just because 
I just started reading. I've re- I read like Peter Guber, Tell to Win. There's all these, you know, Never Eat Alone is like one of the first books I've read, like incredible book just about, you know, socializing relationships. And it's uh, once I got addicted to the process of learning and just like, right, I need to stick on the books. I never stopped. So so you're completely right. And the fact that you've made your book five pound, I mean, there's no excuse. And again, you everyone says, like you said, oh, I want to be rich. I want to do that. And it's like, yeah, great. We if you asked anyone on the street, hey, do you want a big house and, and a bank account full of money? Well, yeah, of course. But the reality is not everyone has that because there's a lot of work that goes in. And, and of course, people want to be on the jets and enjoy the life. But then yeah, yeah, yeah. hours that it takes to get there. And I'm sure you know this from even developing your business. And I'm, and I'm the same. I always preach the whole like, listen, hard work over everything. You know, all the talent in the world amounts to nothing if you're not willing to put in the shift. You know, that's the separation. So 100%. love what you did with the book. Like you said, even the price point, I think that's really thoughtful. And I hope, you know, that, you know, the sales are, you, you're seeing not just because for financial gains, I'm sure you didn't even do it with the view of, oh, this book is going to cash me out. But the reach of the community. Even money, yeah. But yeah, yeah. It's cheap. The, the profits on it, like, I can tell you, when, when Amazon sell my book, I make, I think, 40 something P. 50p or something like that to be on it so you know when i'm i, I put the figures i put the figures out there because it's not like it's you know if i sell the book myself i make more maybe like two pound fifty you know if i buy it from the actual supplier and sell it myself right but there's so often like i'm willing to if someone wanted a book honestly they come there they want a book and they can't afford it you know i'll give it to them free it's not actually even about the you know if i'm trying to make money i'm selling the book a lot more <laughs> yeah 100 you've been in the higher higher um, bracket. And in terms of also, whilst we're on the subject of the book and we spoke about social media, I know you've done, you know, Nothing Beats at the the Night campaign, Nothing Beats a Londoner, um, Facebook's Let's Get to Work. You know, what role has, have you seen like social media play in your career and what impact do you think it will have moving forward and how it can help, you know, the younger generation? As, as you were talking about building the right profiles and social media that allow you career opportunities and and and, and the rest of it. I mean, it's played a massive role, like undoubtedly social media. When social media came about, I remember saying that this is taking away the middleman, or social media has replaced the middle middleman and become the middleman. So I was already seen it as a marketing marketing tool from before. You know, Instagram were doing paid advertising, and, you know, and all those things they paid ads. But just like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. YouTube, whoever, right? Pinterest, they found the audience already. So they've got everybody on this platform. So now it's for you to seek out your audience within that. But you don't have to go anywhere else. You can be on that same platform and find them. So for me, it played a massive, massive part because I was able to basically put myself out there in a way that people got to know me without having to be there with me. And also, as I said, I didn't have to even go and grab everyone and find everyone where they were. I did in a sense, but it was all done through a platform. They done the work. They got everyone on the platform. So I just put myself out there a bit and kind of like search for my demographic within that platform and like, yeah, this is me. It's what I'm doing, you know, you know, come and um, connect to me. So yeah, played a massive role in the branding of my business, in helping my business, in the growth of my business, you know, um, in the success of my business. Using social media correctly is 100% a massive thing. And I think young people, why I talk about it to them is like, you can use it. And the thing is, if you're setting it up right for business, right, 
then I done a like I do I started doing these online classes. Um I do I'm doing it fortnightly now every two weeks, just different subjects. And the last one, which was not last week, was um how to use Instagram. And it just started off by talking about are you the supplier or are you the user? When you're on Instagram, what are you doing? Are you selling something or are you buying something? I'm not talking about using your money to buy something, but you're buying into something or buying something when you're on Instagram. Even if even if it's just someone the entertainment from someone, which isn't a bad thing. It's not like, oh, you can't get laughs from watching someone. No, you can. But as a business, are you spending more of your time consuming or producing? Because as a business for me, I want to be one of the people that you're watching. I don't want to be one of the users. I don't want to be one of the users, one, one of the people buying other people's content in a sense. And I watch it, but even when I watch it, I'm still doing it for research purposes. It might be entertaining, but I'm still taking it on why is this engaging and why is this entertaining? And why has this got me stopping on this page? Now, why why did I scroll past all these other videos, but I stopped at this video? So I'm still using the mindset of a supplier. So I'm able to supply content. You know, so yeah, young people, I'd say, if you're there to start business, then you need to change your mindset straight away and say, okay, am I actually producing content on these platforms and putting stuff out there? Or am I just actually saying I'm there for business, but I'm actually just being a user, taking in everything and, you know, buying into everybody else. And just also just knowing that you're always in an interview as well. So from young, understand that. And social media is, is like your digital footprint almost like forever. So almost like, almost feel like young people shouldn't use social media. It sounds weird, but I almost feel like young people shouldn't. Because at that age when you do stupid things, which we all have done very stupid things, if we always had a camera in our face, a lot of people would be looked at differently. Or a lot of things would follow people and come back to haunt them. But the fact that being younger didn't have no cameras, you could do stupid things, you know, when it's in the past. It's in some people's memories. It's that old joke that someone might bring up that, you know, is it true, is it not? Nobody knows. But social media now, I just find that it's not the best thing for young people. It's, it's a good thing for young people, they use it correctly. But on a young mind, you can just do stupid things. It's funny you say that, because even I look now, like sometimes I go, you know, go through your Instagram and you like archive images or delete some stuff from back in the day, nothing crazy just images but I look at it and I go exactly my approach to Instagram now is a lot more not methodic is probably the wrong word but I I I think about what I post I don't just go on Instagram and just be like oh do you know what I'm just gonna randomly do stuff like now as you said I think about actually you know this is work stuff I put out you know content videos inspirational stuff I like whether it's my family you know you you really think about the things you share and I do agree that young people are much more I guess, emotionally led and, and that probably, you know, you only see the kind of errors with hindsight, like, you know, we can look back at our lives and go, you know, uh, oh, actually, you know, I spotted this, that and the other. So I couldn't agree more about making sh- young people making sure that, you know, they take care of that social media journey because it is a great tool if you know how to use it. But it could also, as you said, come back to haunt you if you, you know, if you neglect it for for its purpose. Um, Maybe they should do classes. Maybe that's maybe where it is because no one's going to stop using social media and I'm not telling people to stop using social media, but maybe they need to have some, maybe some classes in school needs to be introduced just like you're giving them a wider picture of social media and their life. And then if they choose to do whatever they do, want to do, they can, everyone's free will in it, but at least they were informed. Yeah, no, for sure. And even like you said, with this whole, you know, what's going on in the news at the moment, this whole trolling, culture, abuse, racism online. Again, like you, like you said, it's just... It, People just need to be educated more to understand, look, you can't just go around saying these things because some of these I've seen 
one guy, you know, the Ian Wright case and, and you know, yeah, you, you look at kind of like the verdict and you go, it's not, it's sending the wrong message out because it's saying, oh, this is okay, you get a slap on the wrist. But actually what, there should be an education process to say, hey, look, you might not understand it, but look, here's how your words and your behavior and your actions affect other people. And it's, as you rightly said earlier about the world not being about me or you, the, the world's bigger than all of us. And actually we should just respect each other's space. Don't go online to troll and abuse. You know, if you don't do that there, don't do that at all, full stop, you know. But I just think you're right. There's just lack of education mixed with ignorance. And maybe I think, as you said, it starts in the schools. There should be some sort of change in curriculums to actually educate people about that digital footprint, how to behave on and offline. Because I feel like people with... Because a lot of the things people do online, wouldn't, they wouldn't do in real life and vice versa. Do you know what I mean? But yeah, listen, we can talk about that files. And also, um, so what's next for you? I mean, I'm hearing the rumors about the, the product line coming. Can you can you share a bit about that? I mean, it's it's needed. You know, I, I go to Kilburn to buy, like when I need stuff for my hair and whatever. It's just, a, it's a mission. So it's good that you're... Yeah, I'm, um, I'm at a process right now of doing a product line. A few basic products to start off with, a shampoo, a wave cream, a oil-based cream just for moisturizing hair and scalp. And I think I'm going to start off with those three at first. Then we're going to move in and obviously add things like beard oils and all the other things. But those three essentially are what I'm in a process. But it's, it's kind of a long process because it's sampling, going back and forth. Do I like the scent? Oh, is it too oily? Is it not oily enough? Is the whole not enough, do I want a bit more hold, I want a bit more gloss and all these things there. But yeah, so, but I'm in the process right now, you know. Process has started, so it's, it's good, you know. Hopefully by the end of this year, well, beginning of the year, hopefully within the next six months, have some stuff, I'm out. I mean, it's great as well, like I said, for the, for the black hair market, especially, I always feel like I've never understood why, like, no, like, big, big brands have really taken the leap in that space, you know, and developed. Because I find that there's products within a range like yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> rather than like actually build, building specific products, so I think I think it's great that you've taken that leap of faith because it's it's needed. And yeah, I'll look out for that. It'll be um, exciting to see what you do with it, and I'm sure it will take off. As we come to the end now of uh, the podcast, as you know, the podcast is titled "Can I Get a Picture?" So the final question is: Who's the one person that inspires you that you'd love to have your picture taken with, and why? Um. <laughs> I can never choose one person. I'm the product of a budget. I'm, I'm the product of a broken picture. Let's say Dummy Tiny Temper. I've loved the way they built up. We get the music. I love the business side of what they've done. Like I looked at the business side of what they've done. I love the business side of it. You know, with everyone I speak to, it's never actually about what they produce. It's about what <laughs> it's the everything behind it. Um, Anthony Joshua. It's not even about the boxing. It's the business side. Like. And people might think, oh, it's because you cut his hair by saying it. But it's not that. It's respecting good business. Like, this guy opened up a management company while he was still in his prime. That's just smart business. Most people do it when they finish. Because, but right now he headlines shows. He has shows. So why not? It's just kind of like, it makes smart business sense. Like, you know. And there's so much more within the business side of things where I talk to him about it. And it's just kind of like, the business side of what he's doing is amazing. The team you built and stuff like that. So there's, there's him. Um, there is um, there's my mum. 
as I said, the grafting side of just kind of like always hustling and just kind of like, this doesn't work, just onto the next thing, you know, oh, now she's selling products from Avon. Oh, now she's selling food. Now it's just, it's just kind of like, yeah, I got stuff in my head. These are a few people. Thanks again to Mark for taking the time to chat with me and thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Can I Get a Picture Pod and we'll be back again with another episode.